Before reading from God's Word, you'll note in your worship order that our primary text this evening will be from Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. The reference there that you'll see to chapter 37, verses 1 through 9, is when the Lord equips Bezalel to make the various furnishings that we'll read about, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat, just as the Lord instructed. There's parallel language, nearly identical vocabulary between these two. And what's important to see is that chapter 37 is making everything just as the Lord revealed to Moses here in chapter 25. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer before reading his word together. Our great God, we acknowledge that you are the sovereign Lord and King who rules and reigns in righteousness holiness and purity and truth in all of your ways. We are filled with wonder and awe that the same Lord who rules is the one that we can come to as our Heavenly Father because of the finished work of our Savior. And what wonder that we are adopted children of the living God because of our union with Christ, our risen and exalted Lord. May our time together in your word serve to stir our hearts toward greater adoration, wonder, worship and obedience. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them, of the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Now, as the Lord speaks to Moses from the glory cloud atop Mount Sinai for these next 40 days and 40 nights, beginning here in chapter 25 and carrying us all the way through the end of chapter 31 of Exodus, we begin to see that there is great detail upon how everything is to be constructed. From the materials that are to be used, to the dimensions of the structure and the furnishings, down even to the details of where everything is to be placed upon its completion. 
No detail is omitted. And as we mentioned last time, the Lord does not solicit the opinion of anyone to seek their insight on how things should be made. And remember, they are not to deviate from the instructions of the Lord. They are to make everything just as He has revealed. But I think that begs the question, why? Why is there so much detail given? Why chapter after chapter devoted not only to instructing the people on how they are to make everything, but in between this instruction from the Lord to Moses in this 40-day period and the construction of these things, in between is the golden calf incident and a few other items, but more chapters that reiterate everything that we read here. Why so much space in the book of Exodus devoted to these things? Well, that leads to our first point this evening, which is to try to answer that question. Why so much detail? Why so much space given? And I think there are at least two main important reasons why we have so much precision in these chapters. The first is that everything that we're reading about here is a copy, a shadow of heavenly realities. Now, the Garden of Eden was a type of that heavenly throne room. And now the tabernacle is a type as well. Well, where do we get that notion? Well, the writer of Hebrews, incidentally, the book of Hebrews is indispensable for our understanding of this particular section of the book of Exodus. But we read in Hebrews 8 verse 5 that the priesthood, the tents, the furnishings, and the sacrifices serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And so there in Hebrews 8 verse 5, he quotes from Exodus 25, the teaching that's before us, that everything is to be followed precisely because this is a copy of heavenly realities. And so these instructions are to be followed so specifically, so meticulously, because they are a picture, a copy, a shadow of heavenly realities. They're copies and shadows of the heavenly throne room. They point to the most wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done to bring sinners into the presence of the living God, into that throne room above. And so the tabernacle, the furnishings, as beautiful as they are in many ways and certainly valuable, this is not an extravagant structure if you think about it. This is no Biltmore estate up in Asheville if you've ever been there. These are not necessarily ornate things because these elements and the tabernacle are not an end in and of themselves, but a picture of something much greater. Now imagine that you're planning your summer vacation to go out west to visit a national park. You're planning your route. You're seeing how much you can pack in every single day. You look at photos online to know what to expect. But as beautiful as those pictures are, even perhaps done by a professional photographer, it still doesn't satisfy your desire to take the trip, to go and see those things yourself. Those photos are not sufficient because they don't measure up to the reality of the things themselves. And so with the tabernacle, the substance you see is on high. The Lord dwells in the heavens upon His immovable throne. The tabernacle is a picture of God's sovereign rule, but it is also a picture of His desire to be with His people, 
to come and to dwell with them in intimate covenantal presence, for he is God in their midst. And the tabernacle is a picture of how atonement will be secured. The tabernacle helps us understand how a sinful people can come into the presence of a holy and righteous God. We can think of it as a teaching tool to Israel to help them understand who God is and how they might approach Him. And so the Lord cares about the precision of these things because they represent heavenly realities. But I think there could also be another reason as to why there's so much detail given in all of these chapters, and that is because of the gravity of what we're talking about, the weightiness of these things. When we're talking about very significant, eternal matters, how the eternal soul of God might, or the eternal soul of man might be made right with the living God. And so just as Moses, you see, is to listen very, very carefully to what the Lord tells him, and he is to follow the word of the Lord with that precision, this should be our response to everything that's contained in the word of God. We all know that it's offensive to modern man and to human sensibilities to claim that there is only one way to be made right with the living God, one way to have assurance of life eternal. But it's much more offensive to the living God to add or to deviate from His means of reconciliation. It may be offensive to man, but it is absolutely loving to hold out Christ Jesus as the only way, the only truth, the only way to life. He is the one who sets the terms toward reconciliation, and we must receive the Word of God as we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. There is no other way. And so, if these details teach us about the nature of God, If all of these details teach us about how we can be made right with Him, then let's think of a second question that might come to mind. What is the connection between the tabernacle and all of these various furnishings and our own lives today? In other words, for our second point, how should we interpret these things? How should we interpret? What is it that we're learning here theologically? What do these things teach us about the nature of God and the work of Christ Jesus? What do we learn about God's holiness, righteousness, and purity? What does this teach us about how we might have a right relationship with Him? What does this teach us about the gospel? Well, as you might imagine, there have been some very interesting thoughts and ideas throughout church history on how we should understand all of the different elements of the tabernacle. Some have allegorized these different furnishings within this structure. One early church father stated that purple on the curtains represents the water, the linen represents earth, the blue represents air, and the scarlet represents fire. And so all four elements of of antiquity are represented here. One of the reformers said that the outer courtyard is the visible church, The tabernacle is the invisible church, the holy place is the church militant, and the most holy place is the church triumphant. It's probably what you were thinking. But with this allegorical approach, you can tell it just seems to be very arbitrary. It seems to be whatever someone thinks, they sort of impose it upon these different symbols. 
Another approach is to assert that the furniture is only here for functional reasons and nothing more. The tabernacle would be dark, and so it just makes sense that they have to have light in the candelabra. It may be a little bit smelly, and we need to keep flies away, and so we need a table of incense. Still others have sort of hyper-Christologized things. For example, the acacia wood represents the humanity of Christ. The gold represents the deity of Christ, and so his two natures are seen together in the wood overlaid with gold. I'm sure you can see various problems with all of this. But the best way for us to understand these chapters is, you guessed it, the book of Hebrews, which helps us, giving us keys for interpretation. Hebrews lays out for us an interpretive grid, what theologians call a hermeneutic, a way to understand and apply all these varying furnishings in the priesthood. And Hebrews chapter 9 teaches us that those things, the tabernacle, the furnishings, the priesthood, all had a purpose of pointing us to Christ Jesus and how He is that great and final high priest who enters the most holy place with His own shed blood, taking His chosen people with Him. We read in Hebrews 9 verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so all of these things point to Christ Jesus, not in an allegorical manner, but in a typological manner. And so all of these things point to Christ, but let's go on to see how these things do just that. And that's our third point this evening. What should we make of the Ark of the Covenant? What are some important things for us to learn about the Ark of the Covenant? Details for construction that are given in verses 10 through 16. Now, of everything that the Lord is about to reveal to Moses over the course of these 40 days, it's the instruction about the Ark that is the first thing that is described because of its central focus, central focus within the tabernacle. We've, we've all seen probably hundreds of houses being built in our own community over the last couple of years. And whoever the builder is, however large or small or unique those homes might be, they all follow the same pattern. We lay the foundation, the walls, the roof, and then the interior. In other words, they start from the outside and they move in. Now, if you happen to be a salesperson that works for some construction company, the selling point of the house is probably the kitchen, that central location, and how everything else ties around that central feature. And similarly, the most important feature of the tabernacle is this center point. The most important piece of furniture is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top. And of course, it is placed in the most holy place, that inner sanctum of the tabernacle. And so God starts in the center and works his way outward. And why does he do this? Well, again, simply because the ark and the mercy seat together are the most important thing in the tabernacle. This is the place where God will descend and meet with his people. This is the whole purpose for which this structure is made. This is the center point of that tabernacle. Now, when you think of the ark of the covenant, some of you may have in mind classic Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
Or maybe you have a study Bible and you see some drawings of the different pieces of furnishings um, based upon the instructions that are given. And while those both are probably pretty good representations of what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, we actually don't know for certain down to some of those finer details. Even though there is a lot of instruction that is given here in the text, Moses was in a unique position and had a further advantage to perhaps even see beyond the audible instruction of what we find here. Last time we looked there at verse 9. Look there again. It's the Lord that shows or reveals exactly how these things are to be built. And so perhaps part of God's revelation is more than verbal, but actually seeing what he is supposed to do. And what we learn here is that the ark is a relatively small structure, four feet in length, three feet in depth, and three feet or so in height. I'm sure you're all familiar with a cubit in terms of measurements. Had to look it up, measured my own arm to see how close it was. It's from the elbow to the hand, roughly 18 inches or so, but no one knows exactly its length, and so these are all rough estimation. It was made of acacia wood underneath and then overlaid with gold, gold that was to be removed of all impurities. Perhaps we're to think of gold sheets that were held into place with small nails. We then read that there were four feet on the bottom of each corner of the ark so that when it was placed upon the floor, it is still somewhat elevated and not resting entirely upon the surface. There were then four gold rings permanently attached to those feet with poles made of acacia wood also overlaid with gold stuck through those rings. Of course, these are the poles that would be used to transport the ark. And we read this important detail that these poles were never to be removed, not permanently attached, but never removed. And if the rings were further down upon the feet of the ark, then when it was transported, it would be elevated above the heads of the priests, indicating the Lord's royal position over his people. Just as a king might sit upon his throne as his servants carry him in procession, the ark is both the throne and the footstool of the Lord. And we know that the ark was not to be touched when it was moved from place to place. We have that sad incident from 2 Samuel chapter 6 when the ark was coming into the city of Jerusalem and it was being transported on a cart. And as that cart began to stumble and the ark shifted, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady it and was struck dead. For it was not something that was to be treated so carelessly. And then we read later that the tablets of stone were to be placed inside of the ark. And inside of the most holy place was also to be placed a jar of manna and Aaron's staff, which budded with almonds. We'll have more to say about that later. But clearly the ark housed in the most holy place is here in the place of God's intimate covenantal presence. And while God is everywhere, there is something unique about him coming to dwell in the midst of his people, to commune with them and to speak with them through the high priest. Daniel Hyde in his book, God in Our Midst, that I mentioned to you last week, writes, the eternal God who is not constrained by the existence of time 
the infinite God who is not bound by the constraints of space, the transcendent God who dwells above and beyond all time and space, and the immense God who fills all time and space, condescended to the weakness of his people and became manifest for their benefit in one locale. This God is not bound by time, but he bound himself to the time-bound experience of his people. This God is not bound by space, but he bound himself to this box. He is above all creational constraints, but he bound himself to them. He is everywhere, but he was there. And what wonder and what amazement that the eternal and infinite God would make such provision to come and to dwell in their midst. But there's more for us to think about in this section from chapter 25 with uh, this piece of furniture, and that's our fourth point. What should we think of the mercy seat? And notice how there is detailed instruction in verses 17 through 21 on how to make the lid to the Ark of the Covenants, which is called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. It can also be referred to as the place of propitiation. Now, when we say mercy seat, that doesn't mean, of course, the place where mercy comes and sits down, but it is the location in which mercy is to be found. We might talk about the seat of justice or the judgment seat, not as a literal chair, of course, but as a place where justice or judgment is rendered. And notice that this lid is to be made of pure gold. This piece of furniture is not underlaid with any acacia wood. And carved into the top are two cherubim on either side with wings outstretched and faces bowed down in a posture of reverence and awe before the Lord God, for he sits enthroned on high. And the angelic host offer their worship and adoration to him without ceasing. We see, of course, a picture of that in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, at this point in some sort of instruction on pagan temples for their gods, they might have some sort of instruction about how to build a carved image of their false deity inside of their temple. But notice the space above the mercy seat is empty because, according to the second commandment, there should be no visible image of the living God. And again, I think it's worth emphasizing this point from verse 21 that the testimony or the ten words, the ten commandments, those two tablets of stone shall be placed inside of the ark. And so this is the central piece of furniture within the tabernacle, the ark of the covenants and the mercy seat. But let's think of one final point this evening as we consider what we're learning here. What do the ark and the mercy seat teach us And why are they differentiated from one another in the text? God is the one who, of course, is creating all of this, tabernacle and furnishing, so again, that he might come and dwell with his people. This is his idea. This is his divine initiative. These are his instructions, his means of coming into the presence of his people who might come to him through the priestly office. But the people of God are covenant violators. They will break the law of the Lord over and again. 
And so if someone hopes to come into the presence of the Lord on his own merit, through his own obedience to the law, in his own worth, he will only be condemned as a lawbreaker. And so as great and as central as the Ark of the Covenant is to the tabernacle, it really is the lid to the Ark that is the center point. This is the place of mercy. This is the place of atonement. This is the seat of propitiation. Because you see, what we learn later in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 14 and following, is that on the day of atonement, that one day per year, when the high priest was permitted to enter into the holy place, the most holy place, the high priest would first take the blood of the sacrificial bull, which was offered on behalf of his own sin, and place it there upon the mercy seat. He would then go back out of the tabernacle and prepare further, bringing the blood of the substitutionary goat coming back into the most holy place, representing the sins of the people. And that blood would be sprinkled again upon the mercy seat that the sin of the people might be removed. And so imagine the most valuable part of the tabernacle the lid of pure and radiant gold will be sprinkled with blood, indicating that sin is removed through the sacrificial death of the substitute, just as the most valuable and precious and holy person to ever walk the face of the earth will shed his own blood for our sins. And just think for a moment here about the location of everything within this structure. God in His radiant holiness, righteousness, purity is above, separate, and distinct from His creation. Again, verse 22, He will be there above this Ark of the Covenant. And there underneath, in the Ark, is the law of God, a law which reflects the Lord's holiness and perfection. And the law serves also to expose the sins of Israel. But what is it that is between the holy God above and the broken law there in the ark that exposes the wicked heart of the lawbreaker? The thing, of course, that is between them is the mercy seat, the place of atonement. It's this place of propitiation. And it is the blood upon the lid to the ark that keeps them from judgment. It is the blood upon the ark that appeases the wrath of God. So we might think of it like this. When the Lord looks down from His throne on high, what does He see first? Not the broken law, but the blood of a substitute. A sacrifice of another in place of the lawbreaker. Again, Hebrews 9 teaches us that Jesus is that great high priest, and he enters into that most holy place, not with the blood of a bull, for he comes in his own perfect obedience, not with the blood of that goat, but through his own shed blood. It is through the laying down of his very life that we might come with confidence, that we might come even with boldness to that throne of grace. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that is the mercy seat. 
It is the cross where the wrath of God is propitiated. 1 John 4.10, God so loved us that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats are not sufficient. Blood is needed. In other words, life must be forfeited. And Jesus is the only sufficient one. We read in Psalm 85 verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Love and faithfulness, righteousness and peace come together in a provisional fashion here in the mercy seat, but ultimately they come together in the cross of Christ, where God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In a sermon I listened to this past week, it was pointed out that there are these three wonderful things that are placed inside of the most holy place that represent the Lord's abundant goodness to his people. Again, there's the jar of manna. There's Aaron's staff that budded, reminding the people of the Lord's wonderful provision of that high priest. And there are the tablets of stone upon which the goodness of the law is inscribed. And as kind as the Lord is to provide each one of these things, they also represent the wicked rebellion of Israel. They grumble and complain about the provision of manna, at one point going so far as to call it worthless food. They question the leadership of Aaron in Numbers chapter 16 and jealously grasp for his position. And of course, they disregard the law of the Lord in untold of ways. But how often do we do the same thing in our own lives? We despise the provision of God. We grumble at His providence, and we break His laws daily, giving honor to things that deserve no honor, taking His name in vain, pursuing sinful lusts, lying, stealing, coveting, We've rebelled against His goodness, and yet His grace is abundant, unmerited favor through the sending of His only Son, that we might not be condemned under the wrath of God that we justly deserve. And you see, as wonderful as the work of Christ is, as much as His work should stir our hearts, I think the larger question is, do you see your need for mercy? Do you see your need for the mercy seat? Do you see your need for the cross of Christ? Do you see and understand yourself to be a lawbreaker deserving of condemnation? Do you see that there is no merit in yourself, but your only hope is the shed blood of Christ there upon the mercy seat? to receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation. Our cry should be the cry of the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18. Remember the Pharisee who boasted of himself, praying in a prominent position loudly that people might hear him boast in his own self-righteousness, though the tax collector was off by himself. 
in great humility, God, have mercy to me, a sinner. For without mercy, you are doomed to eternal condemnation. And with renewed hearts, may we long to say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and He is my portion forever. It is good to be near God. I have made God my refuge. And ultimately, I find that refuge under the covering of Christ my Lord. Psalm 85 again, for you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. And something I read recently from Jonathan Edwards, he writes, it is the sight of the divine beauty of Christ that bows the wills and draws the hearts of men. It is the sight of the divine beauty of Christ that bows the wills and draws our hearts. And so as you grow to understand the significance of the mercy seat and its centrality within the tabernacle, as you see how critical this place of propitiation was for the children of Israel, it really helps us to see the beauty of Christ, that we might bow our wills to His loving reign that our hearts might be moved to increase love and devotion, obedience, and joyful service to the Lord. May our most merciful God be pleased to work such sanctifying grace in our lives.